Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are going to tackle Isaiah one final message, and I promise I won't preach out of this book for a little while. (laughs) Those of you who have been a part of our church for some time know that we just finished preaching through Isaiah. Uh, But there is so much here uh, that I had to skip over when we studied initially, and I don't want to... um, I don't want to miss that opportunity to, uh, to touch on it while it's fresh in our minds. Every Christmas, every Good Friday, every Easter, I have the uh, pastoral challenge of trying to figure out where should we focus our hearts and minds when we, when we go to the Word of God in preaching. And I think at this point, I've kind of adopted a, a bride's mentality. In other words, uh, you know the rhyme, something old, something new, something borrowed, and something uh, new? Blue, blue. Yeah, new again, you can keep doing the new thing over and over again. In other words, I always want to incorporate something old. I want us to touch on some well-known and familiar passages that highlight the occasion. Obviously, you know, in Easter, we want to preach about the resurrection, and Christmas, we're going to preach about Christ and his birth. I always try to give you something new, and this is a, something I feel particularly passionate about, is I want to preach from texts and themes that we don't normally hit on those days, uh, especially for those who've been in the faith for a while. We hear some of the same messages every Christmas, every Resurrection Sunday. So I want to give us a fresh look at uh, something that's familiar so that we can, we can see it with, with, with uh, clear eyes. I also want to give you something borrowed by tapping into the wisdom of godly saints who've gone before us, because we are not the first people to preach Christ at, you know, at Christmas. We're not the first uh, church or churches to preach you know, Christ at the resurrection. And uh, lastly, I also want to try to give you something blue, and you say, what do you mean by that? Well, the old English tradition that gave birth to that rhyme, the reason a bride should incorporate something blue into their wedding day is because the color blue supposedly represents love and purity and fidelity. And so I thought, well, I want to leave us with a savor of Christ's love for sure, uh, his holiness, and of course, his faithfulness in our hearts. So normally I would not choose the text, a classic Christmas text like we've chosen this morning. Normally I would steer away from that, but... Because chapters 7 and 9 have the kind of the two go-to passages on Christ's birth, and because we have been in this book for the last eight months, I figured we might glean something a little more than normal by coming back to it and meditating on it together, particularly as we look at chapter 9 in a a standalone message. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to come back to chapter 9, and I want to look at verses 1 to 7, and I want to... Um, I want us to understand them in a fresh, hopefully in a fresh and, and clear way. Isaiah writes here, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, this is the, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff upon their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, 
a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government, nor of peace, on the throne of his David, nor of, uh, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And then he ends with this. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. A key theme that begins in chapter 5 of this book and runs all the way uh, into chapter 9 and onward is this interplay between darkness and light. Uh, and that's extended here as we look at chapter 9. Uh, if you look at the beginning of chapter 9, gloom and anguish and contempt and oppression and burdens are contrasted with glory and shining and joy and freedom and peace. And if you look at the totality of Scripture, uh, you see that the whole world lives in one of two realms. All of humanity either lives willfully in the dark or they live watchfully in, in the light. Uh, they either strut around blindly in devilish darkness, or they walk faithfully in the dawn of divine righteousness. There's only two options. And it's this interplay between darkness and light that takes center stage uh, as we come to chapter 9 here in our text. It is by no means, though, the first time that Isaiah has talked about sin's darkness and the Lord's light. Um, as the curtain opens on this book in chapter 7, uh, the, 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 another wicked king is reigning in Judah, and his name is Ahaz. Ahaz is a faithless king. He's an idolatrous king. Uh, Second Kings tells us that he made his children pass through the fire, worshiping Molech, and, and he did what was evil in the sight of God. Um, he, he's an evil, faithless king, and as the king goes, so, goes the, so go the people. Remember, God's law was to be copied and it was to be uh, read and, and meditated on and studied. And, and then the king was to lead Israel in both obeying it himself and leading them into the obedience of God's law. And as was often the case in Israel's history, Ahaz failed at this most basic leadership responsibility. But a wicked king isn't the only problem. That isn't the only problem that Judah's dealing with at this time, as Isaiah writes. Judah's been threatened by their surrounding neighbors, the northern kingdom of Israel, above them, and even Syria. And beyond that, they had an unreliable ally in the south, in Egypt, who wasn't necessarily trustworthy to help them. And beyond that, they had a rising imperialistic adversary who was waking up in the east, in Assyria, and later Babylon. And so, as you, as you get the historical context here, as you just get a cursory reading of the historical background that leads up to Ahaz and his reign, what, what, what Kings and Chronicles teach us is that, is that the situation in Israel and Judah is, is dark. It's dark. Judah as a nation is being eaten away bit by bit. They're growing weaker and more vulnerable by the month. And no matter how you slice it, there is not a lot to be hopeful for from an earthly perspective. These are dark days in Judah. And every new threat, every, every added disappointment would have turned the volume up on their fear and hopelessness in their hearts. 
And it's not as if God hadn't given his people promises to hope in. He absolutely had. God had covenanted with mighty King David centuries before. And he told him that God himself would raise up one of David's descendants uh, and, and a, after David long since passed away. And, that, and then he said God would establish the throne of that descendant's kingdom forever. God promised David's descendant an eternal kingdom. And that eternal kingdom can mean only one thing, which is an eternal king, right? When a king dies, his kingdom ends. So to have an eternal kingdom is to be an eternal king. God had promised David that one of his offspring would be the offspring who would finally and forever crush the serpent's head and reverse sin's curse. But from the days of David and Solomon onward, David's house was a dynasty in freefall. There was the occasional dead cat bounce, but, but it was failure after failure, loser after loser, and the trajectory of the kingdom was obvious to anyone who had eyes to see. David's house at this time is beginning to swirl the drain. It was so bad that even the faithful at some point had to start to wonder, will the promises of God's righteous kingdom ever be realized? Will God's word be, tr- be found true? Will sin's darkness actually swallow up the light? But what the opening chapters of Isaiah teach us is that there is always hope for God to act, even when it seems as though the lights have all gone out. Isaiah begins uh, his book in chapter 6 with his commission. And even there we see that when a king lay dead, and when Isaiah was under a sentence of death, and a sacrifice lay dead upon an altar, and a tree lay dead upon the ground, when sin and death seemed to reign supreme in chapter 6, and the darkness seemed almost all but certain, even then we see life remained in the root. Fire from the altar brings forgiveness and cleansing, and fellowship with God is extended to Isaiah as he's commissioned to go. In other words, we learn that God will act even when it appears that the lights have all gone out. But that continues in chapter 7, when Judah was under the tyranny of an unrighteous king, Ahaz, and surrounded by existential threats on every side, and without allies whatsoever to come to their aid or rescue, even then we see God promises that there will be a savior, a supernaturally conceived a child born of a virgin, and this virgin-born son will be God in human flesh. And when he arrives on the stage of human history, all the world will know that God himself has been at work from the beginning to save his people. And so we learn that God will act even when it appears that the lights have all but gone out. And then in chapter 8, when Israel and Judah uh, are hardened their hearts, when the, Isaiah promises that when the waters of the Assyrian Empire come up to their necks and, and the mighty waters of the Babylonians seem destined to kind of wash them away and with it all the promises of God, even then God says there will be a select individuals who will fear God, who will wait on the Lord, those who will trust in his word. He calls them, in verse 16, a remnant. 
Isaiah refers to them as the Lord's disciples, and they will hold fast to the truth and preserve it for future generations. So we see that God will act even when it appears that the lights have all but gone out. The true and living God, as he's presented to us in these opening chapters in Isaiah, is a God who acts on behalf of helpless sinners in the darkness. And he brings them the light of divine righteousness when it seems that all other lights have gone out. And it is this hope of light that that is described for us and explained for us in our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. And it's worth, just as an aside, it's worth pointing out in the hardest of times, when, when things are absolutely hard in our lives, like that of Judah during the reign of Ahaz, it's easy to become nearsighted in the midst of trials. It's easy to become locked into our immediate circumstances. We cannot see beyond the moment in those times. It, right, it's hard to see in the dark. But Christmas is an opportunity that we have annually as God's people to climb out from our hole to the high ground. It is an opportunity for us, to use another analogy, to put on the corrective lenses to see with clear eyes, fresh eyes, what lies beyond the immediate. The promises of Scripture, and particularly the prophetic voices in Scripture, are, I think, uniquely positioned to carry us to that high ground. They are uniquely positioned to sharply focus the light on the back of our mind's eye to see what God has done, what God is doing, and what he will do in the future. I mean, as you look at Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, Isaiah says, you know, why are God's people running to mediums and spiritists and running away from things? He says, should they not consult uh, God? Should they not consult the God? And he says, to the law, verse 20, and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And so what Isaiah is saying is we need to look to the word of God for light. And what we're going to get a glimpse of in our text this morning is God's testimony. It is his testimony that he will act to dispel the darkness. And standing between the darkness of what is and the glory of what is to come is this promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And so we want to break the text down into three simple parts. We want to see the Lord's action in verse 1 and verse 4. We want to see the remnant's reward in verse two, verses 2 and 3 and verse 5. And lastly, we'll see the realization of hope in verses 6 and 7. So we begin with the Lord's actions in verse 1 and again in verse 4. Chapter 8 ends with the lights going out as God's people harden their hearts against God's corrective discipline. You can see that in verse 21. He says, of Israel, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out when they are hungry They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward, and they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. From an earthly perspective, it seems like God has closed up shop, that he has shut off the lights, and that he has walked away. That's what Isaiah describes here at the end of chapter 8. 
The darkness and distress that they will experience is real. And if you've ever tried to navigate a pitch black room, or when your eyes aren't adjusted, you know it can be incredibly disoriented to make even the most simple tasks possible. And that, he says, is how it's going to be for Judah for a season, for a long season, centuries. But just like the emptiness of a dark room is more about our perception of that dark room than the reality of what's in the room, the, rea- the, the reality is also that is true of God's creation as well. The reality is that God is very much present. God is very much seated on the throne, even when it seems like sin's darkness has swallowed up the light. The one who sees with the eyes of faith, like Isaiah does here, that person isn't disoriented by the darkness. They're able to see the reality of what's truly there, and they do so in hope. And Isaiah's hope here is that God will act, and his hope in God is so sure, so real, because it's tethered to the promises of God, that he begins to speak about what God will do as if it's as good as done some 700 years before it even happens. Look at verse 1. He says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali were the territories to the west and southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And and because of where they were situated, they found themselves on the outer edge of the promised land, just because of how it was allotted. And so, because they were on the bleeding edge of the promised land, they were the first territories to fall to the Assyrians when the enemy came and attacked in, con- in conquest. Uh, in fact, they fell as early as 733 BC. And so what God is promising here in verse 1 of chapter 9 is that the region that was the first would be the first to experience the darkness of exile. That land will be among the first to see and experience the light of messianic blessing. As you fast forward to the Gospels, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We just, we just read about that uh, in Luke chapter 2. But where did Mary and Joseph live before, as they went to register for the census? They, re- they lived in Nazareth. Nazareth was a city of the tribe of Zebulun. Beyond that, early on in Christ's ministry, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus withdrew from the region of Judea to Capernaum. And it says, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? Matthew actually tells us this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, those who were the first to experience the darkness were graciously among the first to bear witness to the dawn of light. A new situation would one day break forth in time and space, and that dawning of messianic blessing would be nothing short of God's direct action. Notice the, he says, he will treat them with contempt, this region. And he also says, he will make it glorious. We also see the Lord's direct action in verse 4. God didn't just act at Messiah's first coming, but he will act decisively at his second coming. He says, For you shall break the yoke of their burden, 
and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. God is the one who in the future will break the yoke of his people's burdens. God is the one who in the future will break the staff upon their shoulders. God is the one who in the future will break the rod of their oppressors, he says, as at the battle of Midian. You say, what's significant about the battle of Midian? Why does he even mention that? Why does he say, as at the battle of Midian? Well, if you go back to Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8, you'll realize that that's a reference to Gideon. The battle of Midian was a famous battle in Israel's history where God wrought a decisive victory for his people. Midian was a battle where God took Gideon, who was a nobody, and he got 300 other nobodies, and then he went out and he won a decisive victory, delivering his people in such a way that they could only attribute the victory to God. The point is, that when God acts to deliver his people, when he lifts every burden, Isaiah says, when he lifts every physical burden, every spiritual burden, when he breaks the rod of every oppressor, including the evil one who would seek to enslave us again, when all suffering and sin and darkness are dispelled, there will be no doubt in anyone's mind that God is the one who has won the victory. It will be his doing. This is why John in Revelation describes myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands of heavenly hosts praising God in heaven in Revelation 5. And they are crying out, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Why does John describe every created thing in heaven and on earth praising God? And why will that be the case forever and ever when the glory of God shines in his future kingdom? It's because he is worthy. It is because he has done it. Revelation 5 verse 9, he says, You have purchased with your blood for God people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The glory goes to the Lamb who was slain. And because the Lord has acted decisively to deliver his people, and because he has put sin's darkness to flight, the remnant who walk by faith will come to enjoy incredible reward. And that's the second point in our outline. As we look at the remnant's reward in verses 2, 3, and again pulls in some of those details in in verse 5. In verse 2, he says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they, revi- when they divide the spoil. There's a poetic uh, richness and beauty to God's word here in verses 2 and 3. As we said earlier, those who suffered under sin's darkness, those from whom God's face seemed hidden the longest, he says they'll be the first to see and experience messianic blessing. And the word uh, translated in the NAS as dark land, or in the ESV it might be translated deep darkness, 
that is the same term that you see in Psalm 23 in verse 4 when it speaks of the shadow of death. Same term. Isaiah says that those who experience such calamity in this life, that it casts a death-like shadow over them. Even on those people, the light of divine blessing will shine. Even in our little church, I know there are people who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you have lost spouses. Some among us have dealt with years of abuse and estrangement from family. Some among us have grieved the death of children and newborns. While others have chronic health issues that make even the most basic day-to-day tasks impossible. Some of us are weighed down so heavily by sin and its consequences, both past and present, that at times it can make it hard to breathe. What Isaiah promises here is that even those who walk in darkness, those who seem to have been hurled headlong into the valley of the shadow of death, they will feel the warmth of the Lord's glorious light shine upon them one day as they trust in and wait on his salvation. Those who weep and lament here in this life will, in that day, experience unspeakable joy of every kind. That's what he means there in verse 3, or he says that uh, they will, uh, he speaks about the gladness of harvest and the, the joy of rejoicing when dividing the spoil. It speaks, it, it's, a, it's a poetic way of speaking of every kind of joy will be theirs. Those, who live, those whose lives were marked by the conflict uh, uh, between man, between man, and, he, and even conflict with God will experience a cessation of hostilities. Peace with their fellow man, peace with God. Verse 5, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. He's saying there will be no more conflict. There will be no more war. No more adversarial uh, relationship between God and man. And I'm reminded of John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, he says, says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is the remnant's reward. The remnant's reward is God himself dwelling with his people, dispelling the darkness in kingdom glory. We've seen the Lord's actions. We've seen the remnant's reward. Thirdly, Isaiah beckons us to consider the realization of hope in verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6. He says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You notice there's a little connecting word there at the beginning of verse 6, 4. And uh, we said that alerts us that what follows connects back to something that was said previously in, uh, in a previous verse or a previous section. In this case, it connects back to verse 3, where God promises to gladden his people. 
And so here Isaiah explains the reason for the joy that God's people will experience. And yes, we're joyful because every kind of suffering has ended. And yes, we are joyful because there, has been a cessate, there will be a cessation of hostilities. But the greatest joy of all is saved for the, the last. And that is this, a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. See, in contrast to the fickle and faithless, faltering house of David, there will come, he says, an anointed one who will reign supreme for all eternity. In the language that he uses here, it echoes the language of the covenant, David's uh, Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. God promises there will be a child born, so we know that this, this one who comes will be of human parentage, of human descent, and yet... Unlike a mere man, this child is destined to rule the world eternally and perfectly. And he's called by four different names here. And those names describe his character. Those names reveal his identity. It tells us who he is. He's called Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful here is the closest word in Hebrew to our English word supernatural. This child will be a supernatural counselor who will instruct the people with wisdom that can only come from God. He's also called Mighty God. We know that this child will be born, so he'll have a human nature, but he's not a mere human descended from Adam. He's also divine. He will have a divine nature as well. He will be God in human flesh, Mighty God. He's also called the Eternal Father. The emphasis here is on his father-like compassion, his tenderness, his love that, that this one will exercise toward his beloved children. For all eternity, Isaiah tells us that this one will deal with his children as a loving father. And fourthly, he's called the Prince of Peace. Uh, in uh, Hebrew, we know the word for peace is shalom, right? Uh, It means more, though, than the absence of conflict, which is how we think of the word peace in English. It captures the notion of wholeness. It captures the idea of of completion and with it prosperity, along with those ideas of tranquility and harmony. In other words, peace is no lack, no deficiency, no discord, And he is called the prince. Uh, It's also similar to our English word administrator. As the prince of peace, this one will be the administrator of all God's benefits and all of God's blessings on his people. And so taken together, the, the terms speak of a child who will instruct with perfect wisdom, who will act powerfully as the mighty God, who will care for and love his children everlastingly, and whose personal presence will usher in eternal peace and blessing. This is none other than the absolute supremacy of the Son of David forever and ever. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. It will never end. How will this glorious kingdom hope for the future come to be reality? 
Are, are men going to do it? Are men going to get us there? Verse 7, the end, he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God's work. This is God's work. No mere man, no church, no political system, no effort of our own will ever accomplish what God must do and what God will do. His zeal, his commitment to his word will bring it to pass. Our God keeps his promises. They cannot fail. And who is this gift of a child, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this eternal father, this prince of peace? Of course, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. When the angel spoke with Joseph in a dream to explain what was basically inexplicable, that his fiancée, a virgin, was found to be pregnant with a child by the Holy Spirit, the angel said to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated means God with us. This one who was, as Revelation says, and is and is to come, is the realization of our hope. He lived a sinless life. He died an atoning death. He rose victorious from the grave, and the scripture says he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And this child, born of a virgin, in the fullness of time, according to divine promise, fulfilling every divine promise, this is the child that we celebrate at Christmas every year as God's people. And John says, he is the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. God acted, even when it seemed that the lights had all but gone out. Sometimes the world, and even sometimes Christians, can make the mistake of comparing uh, faith with blindness. That to exercise faith means you have to continually just kind of shut your eyes to um, some aspects of reality. A faith, we're told, requires a, a stubborn belief in something um, without evidence, or even in spite of evidence to the contrary. We just believe. Scripture paints a very different picture of faith's relationship to sight. Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians, draws this connection between faith and knowing. As he's talking about his a zeal to proclaim the gospel and perseverance in that, he says, having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. He says, we also believe, therefore we also speak. How does he do this? How does he preach the gospel? He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. It's important how these things modify one another. It's because of what is written. It's because of the testimony of the eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection from the grave that Paul can have courageous faith to trust in and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So all to say faith is not floating out there in midair. Faith is grounded, and the bedrock of saving faith is a reasonable investigation and apprehension of what's written in the Word of God. Faith and blindness are not synonyms. Faith and knowing are not in opposition to one another. As the writer of Hebrews says, Moses left Egypt 
not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. How did he do this? He says, as seeing him who is unseen. In other words, Moses wasn't blind. He saw. Where am I going with this? I guess what I'm trying to say is that saving faith is the God-given ability to see in the dark. Especially in the darkness of a world that is corrupted by sin and suffering. Even more than that, though, I think faith sheds light on what's normally veiled in the darkness so that we can see in and delight in the invisible realities of the triune God, the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, his work to save sinners, and his future kingdom. God has acted even when it seemed like the lights had all but gone out, sending his son into the world, born of a virgin, to live, to die, and to rise again for the salvation of helpless sinners like you and like me. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so I ask you this morning, do you see him? Do you see him? To all who receive him, that is to all who believe on his name, he gives the right, the privilege to become children of God. There is no greater gift than you can receive this Christmas in the gift of God himself. And there's no greater light you can walk by in this life than the light of life himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Isaiah's prophetic word. It is so sharp. It is so clear. And the realities that it unfolds for us have come to pass exactly as you have proclaimed them to be. And we have the testimony the eyewitness testimony of Christ's birth, his life, his resurrection, his death and his resurrection from the grave. And so, Lord, we herald that and we, we rejoice that a, son, a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. And, Lord, we long for that day when your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray, Lord, that you would come quickly and that every heart would be ready to receive you and to be welcomed into your glorious presence. And Lord, would you draw hearts to yourselves? Would you strengthen those who are in Christ to stay the course? Help us to see him who is unseen today, tomorrow. And Lord, keep us until that final day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, Visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.